Morning, church. If you've got your Bible, be trying to find the book of Esther. <laughs> the book of Esther, chapter 4. It may have been a while since some of you have turned to the book of Esther. Let me get this text and I'll be right with you. Let's pray before we get started, Father. We really do believe that you'll make a way where at the moment there doesn't seem to be a way. You are the master of that, it seems. And I pray that you touch our hearts and you um, refire some of our hearts this morning to believe that's true. We want to give you our hearts. And we want to invite you to have your way with us. Kind of. If that's kind of where we are before we begin this message, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, you will nudge us past, kind of, to, Lord, I really do want to give you my heart and invite you to have your way with me. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ and everybody said. Uh, where is Raymond? Could we do that song that we just said, Lord, I give you my heart? Could we wrap that for the invitation song and I'll notify the booth for that? Just kind of got a nudge from the Spirit through it. Guys, would you all remember to do that? That would be the invitation song, not the battle belongs to the Lord, but Lord, I give you my heart. A couple in the suburbs of New Jersey were celebrating their 40th anniversary. And um, <laughs> they were headed to a fancy dinner in New York City. But not just a fancy dinner, but the husband had gone to a great deal of, um, of effort and energy to try to make reservations at a place that was really, really hard to get into. And also a stay at the Waldorf, Astoria. And uh, the couple, both of them, were excited. Uh, they were dressed to the nines and ready for their evening. And so the husband goes to put the cat out, tries to secure the door. But before he does, the cat gets back in. Well, they didn't want to keep the cab driver waiting and possibly lose their ride. And they, they didn't want the cat in the house while they were gone. And so the husband says to the wife, look, you go hold the car. I'll go find the cat. And I'll put it out, and then I'll come join you. Well, the wife heads to the cab and realizes she didn't want the cab driver to know that the house is going to be empty the entire night. And so she says to the cabbie as she opens the door for her, my husband will be here in just a moment. He went upstairs to say goodbye to my mother. Well, a few minutes later, the husband arrives back at the car, and he says, I'm sorry that took so long. The stupid thing was hiding under the bed, and I had to poke it with a hanger to get her out. Oh, trust me, that has some application. It is not always easy to get us to move, is it? Which is why we need to stay open to the call of God. He has been known to poke, you know, and to prod when we won't move. And you know what? He really would rather not do that. What he would really rather do is... Just call. Last week we looked at a lesson that I entitled Call Forwarding. And the reason for that lesson was that whenever God comes to us with a call, it's always to call us forward. Yes, He accepts all of us right where we are, but He loves us too much to leave us there, both in our relationship with Him and our relationship with each other and our relationship to this planet. And so I want to start this lesson off by asking a question. What best describes your walk with God? 
Is it a movement? Or is it a statement? There's always a purpose for his calls, trust me. No, trust his word. Because even though we can't always clearly see what the purpose is in the moment of that call, when we answer that call, when we're obedient to follow what he's calling us to, God assures us we will be able to look back and to say, man, I'm glad I took that call. So we're taking a look at what Scripture had to say about the nature of a God who not only called people back in the old days, but continues to call people today. Abraham, as we looked at last week, is known as the father of faith because of how he answered God's call. And he's going to serve, at least in this series for me, as the male example in the Old Testament of who followed God not knowing where he was asking him to go. This morning, for a female example of an Old Testament person who received his call, I want to look a little bit at Esther. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I've invited you to turn there, but if you don't have your Bibles, just follow along the screen with us and you'll do just fine. Let me see if I can set the context. Israel is God's chosen people. He he called them out of Egypt. He, He promised that through this nation of people, he would bring his son, the Redeemer. But when he called them out of Egypt and he gave them the law and he and he brought them into the promised land, he made a covenant with them. He would be their God if if they would choose him back and allow him to be only their God. And they broke that covenant. They decided that some of the neighbor's gods looked a little bit more exciting, a little bit more promising than theirs at times, and so they dabbled in their neighbor's gods, and God said, really, you'd like to get you some of that? Well, just cross the fence, and why don't you just move in for a while? And so he has the nation of Babylon capture them and take them into captivity, back into captivity for 70 years. How about that for a timeout? But he wanted the nation of Israel to realize, we're really serious about this. For your benefit and the benefit of the world. Then another warring nation comes and they overthrow the Babylonians while they're in captivity. The nation of Persia. The Persians allow actually some of the Jews to go back to their homeland, but some, because they have become so acclimated to where they are with their businesses and the way of life, they decided to stay. Now the ruler of the Persia was a man by the name of Xerxes. Say Xerxes. Okay, good. Xerxes was a powerful, powerful man, and the man loved a good party. So much so that after he became king... He called all of his governors in the land and said, I want you to come to Susa, the capital. We're going to have a party in for six months, an endless party. Now that is, as we used to say in high school, a party. Six months. And then to tap it all off, he says, you know, we need an after-party party. And so for the next seven days after that six months, he threw another party. And he was so bombed out of his mind on wine that he decides to call in his beautiful wife, Vashti. This was during a time when you didn't say no to your husband, let alone no to the king, but this was such a deplorable act, him wanting to show her off, Vashti didn't come. Well, this infuriated the king and his nobles who thought, we can't have word getting out to all the surrounding nations that women don't obey their husbands. And so Vashti is banished from the palace forever. But now Xerxes has no queen. Well, the officials give him some advice. They say, I'll tell you what, send 
to all 120 provinces and have them send a representative of their finest looking virgins to the capital. And we'll have our own version of The Bachelor. What do you say? And he loved that idea. They bring in all these women, turn them over to the handlers of the king to literally get them ready for one entire year. Baths, oils, perfumes for a solid year. And whoever makes the best impression on the king is promised a rose and a throne. Well, one of the girls that was picked was a Jewish girl, and as you guessed it by the chapter we've turned to, her name was Esther. Her story really is a reality show dream. She was an orphan. Her parents actually died while they were in this time out, while they were in captivity. So she couldn't go back to Jerusalem when Persia routed Babylon. But she was adopted by a man by the name of Mordecai. Now, there's going to be quite a few names in this introduction, and so I need your help, okay? And, and, and so I just want to say, when I say the word Mordecai, and because it's Master's Weekend, hallelujah, because it's Master's Weekend, I want you to do a golf clap when I say Mordecai. So let's practice. Here we go. You ready? Mordecai. No, golf. Very soft. Mordecai. Very, very good. One more time. Mordecai. Excellent. Now, when Esther's chosen by her province to represent them, she goes against her will, and Mordecai advises her, don't tell anybody about your ethnicity. Don't you dare tell anybody that you're a Jew. Well, God's favor is still on Esther, and she's loved by all the king handlers so much that they kind of give her the special treatment, getting her ready for the bachelor. And voila, at the end of the year, Esther not only gets a rose, she gets a proposal. She has chosen the new queen of Persia. Now I want to hit pause here for just a moment because I know you're probably having some trouble understanding this because it's hard to imagine a culture in history where men were so superficial that middle-aged guys would actually get rid of their first wife to impress their peers with a younger, thinner second wife. I know that's hard to wrap your mind around. But God says it's true. Now here's where Darth Vader enters our story. He's one of the king's close, highly, rep highly um, respected counselors. And his name is Haman. Now, when I say the name Haman, you say, Boo. Okay, here we go. Haman. Very good. One more time. Haman. All right, Mordecai. Haman. Excellent, you're ready. Here we go. This is a bad man. He was a descendant of some people who actually hated the Jews just because they were Jews. They had lost a lot of battles to the hands of these Jews, and so they detested him. But this man, Haman, was such an egomaniac that even though he wasn't king, he wanted people to bow when he walked by. And you know who refused to do that? Mordecai. He would only bow to God. Only to God. Only to Jehovah. Well, Haman overreacts and he says, I want him dead, this Mordecai. And all of the Jewish people, not just Mordecai, but all of them. There you go. Some of you are trying to keep up. That's great. 
And through a series of manipulations, here's what Haman does. He talks to King Xerxes, and he gets him to sign a specific edict that on a very specific day in the future, all of the Jews will be wiped off the planet. Xerxes, as you can tell by now, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He says, okay. Well, Mordecai finds out about this, and he's distraught, and who wouldn't be? Let me hit pause here for a moment and say, though his name is never mentioned in the text, Satan is at work through Haman. He knows it's been promised that a deliverer, a redeemer, is coming through these people, the Jews. And so he helps come up with this plan that if he can eliminate the Jews, then he eliminates that redeemer who's about to mess up what he started at the fall. So as a tool of the, day, of the devil, this man by the name of Haman comes up with an evil plan. The interesting thing is, Esther doesn't even know that any of this is going on. She's back in the palace. She's getting you know, the oil bath treatments and the perfumes. She's living a life of luxury and has no idea what threats have been made to her people. Until one day she goes to the king's gate and there she sees Mordecai. But he is not a happy man at all. He's, he's wearing sackcloth, but he's wearing ashes. And Esther remembers that's, that's the, the sign of mourning. And so she orders her attendants to get this man some great clothes. But he won't have them. Now, this ends our introduction, so no more boos and no more claps, okay? But I didn't want to get you through the introduction. That brings us to our story this morning, which we'll pick up in Esther chapter 4, verse 7. Mordecai told him, the queen's attendant, everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of all of the Jews. Mordecai also gives him a copy of the text of this edict of their annihilation, which would be published in all of Susa. And to show it to Esther and explain to her, Mordecai told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and to please beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Now you may have known this, but up to this point, Mordecai has told Esther to try to hide her ethnicity. But now he says, this is the time. This is your moment. This is your wake-up call, Esther. Let the king please know that his queen is a Jew. But Esther's got a lot of reasons to not want to take this call. Listen to her response. One of the king's supervisors of his harem went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him, you say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any woman or man who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned... The king has but one law. They be put to death. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now most of us think because um, Esther is queen, she can just move into the king's presence anytime she wishes. That's not how it worked here. The king still has a harem even though he does have a queen. He still has scores of other women, and so just by the fact that she's queen does not guarantee intimacy for her and her husband. 
As a matter of fact, if you'll notice, she says, it's been 30 days since he's asked for me to come into his presence. Let me translate that for you. She's not the flavor of the month, if you know what I mean. Then Esther reveals that the only thing worse than not going to the king's court when he's summoned, which is what happened to Vashti, the only thing worse was going on your own uninvited, and anyone who does that has a death wish. He doesn't extend his scepter. You die, no questions asked. So I think it's a little understandable when Esther's first response to the call is, Sorry, you've got the wrong number. You're going to have to find somebody else to answer this call. And then comes one of the most powerful texts in all of the Old Testament, I think, to encourage those of us here who are living under the New Testament. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family, you will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now what Mordecai is implying is, Esther, all these seeming coincidences in your life, all these serendipitous experiences, um, the extended family that didn't take you to Jerusalem when they could have, that you were brought to my house with me just so happening to have a high ranking with the king. That you just so happened to win the bachelor's eye out of all the beautiful women in all of Persia. Esther, all of these accidents or coincidences, they are actually the activity and provision of our God. You are not where you are for the reason the king thinks. You are where you are for the purpose of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what's happening in your life. So don't let your privilege in place deafen you to the call that's on your life, Esther. And she doesn't. The response of this courageous woman was to answer her call in such a way that stuns me, has stunned me this week, and I'm pleased to be able to bring this to you, is why she's even being talked about, get this, 30 centuries later, in a room of people like us. Esther sent to Mordecai this reply, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days night or day, and I and my attendants will fast along with you. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. That's a wake-up call well answered, isn't it? A call that Esther may have wanted to ignore, but she, I don't want to say couldn't, because she could. She just didn't. Now, if you don't know the end of the story, I strongly want to encourage you that in your devotional time this week that you'll find the book of Esther and finish that story. But Esther is welcomed by the king. And rather than the Jewish people being eliminated, the evil Haman is. He said, well, Jimmy, that's a great story. But how does her call have anything to do with our calls today? Well, for starters, I think for every one of us, 
I want to try to make this as clear as possible. If you are awake, living, and breathing, and hearing me, you need to hear this from God this morning through the story of Esther. Your place, no matter what you hear from your science teachers at high school or in college, your place in this world is no accident. It is no accident you're here. God has a purpose and a plan for your life to make a difference in this world. It's why he brought you into this world. I hope with all of my heart that you understand that God has a call on your life. So much more than just folding laundry and cutting the grass and playing video games and staying within the 15 pounds of your ideal weight till you die. We were born to live, listen to me church, on mission. Every single one of us. And I think that there's a hunger inside every one of us that says something along the lines of, I think my life matters for something. And I'm here to confirm, it does. And Satan is at work, like he was at work in in Esther's life, in Mordecai's life, to drive that thought out of your mind. When I was a teenager, there was an advertisement that took aim at that belief that we matter, that there's a, a mission for all of us. The opening scene was of a little baby. <laughs> I couldn't help but think as Art was holding little Ezra a while ago. It's that same kind of scene, and the dad got Stanley, was this baby's name, in his arms. And he says, one of these days, Stanley's going to grow up to be president. The second scene, the father of the bride says to Stanley, his wife, future wife. I know you want to go to medical school, but I want you to join the family business. Third scene. You see Stanley and his wife at some exclusive resort. They obviously have money to be more than comfortable, to live a little bit of a life of luxury. And then there's scene number four. It's the last scene you see a preacher over a casket. And he's saying, Stanley was one of the most loved members here at Shady Nook Resto. He was our best gin rummy player. Few people knew he had lower cholesterol than anybody else in our facility. And then in the very last scene, you hear these words, isn't it sad to live your whole life and never make a ripple and never rock a boat? Join the Peace Corps. Why make such a commercial like that? I think it's because even people at the Peace Corps understand we were made to live on purpose. We were made to live for a reason. Because our lives matter. If we do not pursue this purpose that God has for you in this world, I want you to understand something. You will choose a default purpose. It just happens naturally, whether you want to believe it or not. Let's call it... uh, the seduction of the default mission. Okay? If you don't pursue this call that God has on your life, if you don't pursue this drawing of Him to show you how your life is going to matter, you will have a default mission of your own. We all do. We just go there if it's, if it's on autopilot with our mind. It's, it, it, we just kind of go there when, it's on, when our lives are on autopilot. Whenever we're not living in this mission God's created us for, we will defer to the default mission. It's like the story that I heard of two old guys who ran into each other in the grocery store. They ran into each other with their grocery carts, and the first one says, I'm sorry. 
I was looking for my wife and I wasn't paying attention to where I was going. The second man said, well, that's funny. I was looking for my wife too. The first man says, well, maybe I can help you find her, what she looked like. The second guy says, well, she's 27, long red hair, blue eyes. She's beautiful. Then he says, what does your wife look like? And the first guy says, it doesn't matter. Let's go look for your wife. It's easy for our flesh to get off mission, isn't it? To a default mission. That's not the reason we were created for. Xerxes had a mission. God gave him a kingdom to rule, to take care of his people, to be just and fair, to govern wisely. But he drifted into a default mission to pursue as much pleasure as he possibly could, because he could. His goal seemed to be to throw one bigger party after the other. Haman had a mission to be a wise and helpful counselor to his king, to help his king govern well the people under their rule, but he defaulted to his lesser mission, achieving a name for himself. Celebrity status. And you know of Esther's mission. But she could have defaulted to a different one that she could have sold out for. She could have lived the rest of her life as eye candy. That's what our culture says beautiful women are for, to be eye candy. To put themselves in the arm of, of the most powerful, wealthiest man that they can find and live a life of luxury, never having to be concerned about those people out on the streets. The Bible is full of warnings about the default mission. Remember what Jesus said about a businessman who had had a really good year? He couldn't even fit all of his earnings into his barn, and so he ignored the obvious. That is to share that excess with those who were around him every day that needed it. No, he was going to build bigger barns to put it in and throw bigger parties. And Jesus said, big mistake. Because your life is required of you tonight. And Jesus called that man a fool. Because he ignored his obvious call to take the excesses in his life and to use it for those who needed to be blessed. So let me ask a question again. Your movement or statement? What's your default mission, friend? Where does your life drift when you stop thinking about and living in your calling? Can I tell you what mine is? Making money. That's my default mission. It has been since the days of my dad Noticed I was making good grades and said, you know what? Good grades are meant to make big money, Jim. And he convinced me to get a job as an accountant because in his mind, if you're good at math, there's some big steady money in accounting. He never talked to Tim Porter or Jerry Oliver. But thanks to John Featherston, I felt a call to preach when I was in high school. At first I thought it was because of the attention that it brought me, and it brought me some. When I shared devos at the care center or if I did a communion thought at the church, oh, I had these people who, man, that's really good. So you ought to think about possibly preaching. I started out at Texas State University to get that business degree with a concentration in accounting and then went on to the University of Texas. And then I ran into cost accounting and then I knew this is not my calling. And my brother died that year, just a little earlier. And those two things together helped me to hear 
louder and clearer than I ever had in my life that my last two years, my junior and senior years, needed to be aimed at getting a degree in biblical theology. And so I did. It was like preaching chose me. That's the best way that I can describe a call. It's like it's choosing you. It's calling to you. But my default mission was then and still is now making more money. And if I don't, I don't lean into this calling that God has given me, that's what I default to. Not, 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 I'm a little embarrassed about that, but it's just true. I know a lot of us struggle with that, especially when you come from a family of eight and you don't have much of it. Man, you want to make sure you do. So let me ask you, what's your default mission? Where do you go when you just are living on autopilot and not leaning into the call that God's put in your heart? Maybe it's no coincidence that you're here today and you're hearing words like, this time, this day, God's calling you. God's calling you. And you, and you, and you. He's calling you. Two truths I want you to take away from Esther's story and we'll be done. First one is this. At this time, God has a purpose for you and me. Not someday in the future. I love it when Clark says this. Our children are not the future church. They are the now church. I want those kids to know they've got a calling now. Now. Because I'm not sure some of us who are 50, 60, and 70 or older believe we still have a calling. I want them to know they have one that never ceases. That God's called them to be His and to be involved in His kingdom, not building their little kingdom themselves. Esther had good reasons not to like her time. <laughs> Man. She had good reasons not to like the circumstances of her life. She didn't want to be married to this old coot. That wasn't in her plan. But she was here at this place and at this time for this calling to help save this people of God. And the answer was, the question was, would she answer it? The question's the same for you. I don't know what your predicament is. I don't know what your set of circumstances are, but I can almost guarantee you, if you sense God calling you, there's going to be a lot around you that says, no, you don't want to answer that call. No way. Too much risk. Too much possible loss. Too much awkwardness. Too much effort. No way. But you still hear him calling. This phrase, for such a time as this, just kept jumping out into my notes all week long. And I just have to believe that God has brought somebody here, maybe more than one, to hear this for such a time as this, God's calling you today to get in the game. I don't know if you felt like you've been disqualified because of your past to never even think about you getting in the game. I want you to hear it this morning. For such a time as this. Today. God's calling you. I don't think this message is being preached all over America or the world right now, but I know it's being preached here to this particular group of people that God's brought to this place at this time. He's calling you. And He awaits a response. One of the most impacting statements about a biblical character, I think, in all of Paul's writings comes in Acts chapter 13. When Paul's preaching, he says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Wow, that's not a bad epitaph. 
that I would finish what God had designed for my purpose and then fall asleep, that's a pretty good epitaph. So I'm going to ask you this morning, would you please stop and just think about the coincidence in your life that have put you in the seat you're in at this moment. Why are you here? Now, why are you here? Why in the world would God stick this ragamuffin preacher up here at this time in this place to say these words to you? I'm calling you. I'm asking you to get in the game in a way you've never quite gotten in the game before. The call is forward, deeper, wider, more purposeful than ever before. Which leads me to the second point. At no time is God hindered by your reluctance. He won't be. You can go ahead and refuse. You can go ahead and let this be just one more sermon in which you, amen, sang the song, went out and got lunch. It will not keep God from accomplishing His will, I promise you. Did you hear what Mordecai said to Esther? If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise, but from someplace else. Well, what place? Well, Mordecai had no idea. Neither do you. He had no idea what God would do if Esther didn't answer this call. Just like God made a promise to Abraham. If you will leave this place, a parent, and and set out for, well, I'll tell you when we get there. I will put a nation in your barren marriage. I know you can't see it now, but not just one. I'm telling you, a nation of people will be your descendants. How could that be? Like we sang a few moments ago, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. I don't know how he does it, but he does it all the time. He says to Esther, if you don't cooperate, God will have a plan B. But God is going to accomplish his mission. The question is, is will we partner with him or not? Satan will not be able to stop any of God's purposes. And one of the promises he's made to us is the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. His church. Now, we have never been the sum of God's people. We're finally getting that one down pat. But we are some of God's people. And so the question is, not just for individuals, but for this church, are you hearing his call? It's a call forward. To keep moving, to keep going, to keep growing like never before. Like this church has never seen before. Are you hearing His call? What if the church drifts into default mode and just starts settling for coming to church and paying a few bills as the mission? Some people are concerned about that. What if we forget that helping the poor? What if we forget about reaching our neighbor who's less than 50 feet from our property line? What if we forget about our larger faith family right here in Kerrville? What if we forget about the influence that we can have in some young mothers and young people's lives who are trying to get a second start on life? What if we choose not to to answer that call? Do we think God's agenda is going to be handicapped? No way. God will inspire other disciples to do that. God will accomplish what He needs to accomplish because He's King. (laughs) Trump's not King. Biden's not King. I don't care who sits on a real throne today. They're not King. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. He is. And He will have His way. What He wants to know is, is can He do it through you? 
Don't miss out on the right of that. You want to be in on the right of that. What if I'd have said no? Pass on the preaching gig, Lord. Thanks, but no thanks. I've seen what you do to preachers or what you allow to happen to preachers. Well, I've seen how they're mocked and I've seen how short-lived most of their, their tenures are at their churches and I've seen the little pay. That, no way. What if I'd have said no to all that? You know what I would have missed? the most incredible times of people's lives and getting to partner with them in it and them giving birth to their children and saying yes to someone in their life that they want to commit their life to and getting a chance to help be a part of God knitting their hearts together. I would have missed out on, on helping the suicidal not take their lives. I would have missed out on the marriages that were messed up in adultery, being restored and put back together and, and flying like nobody's business. I would have missed out on so much. Your invitations, your blessings, your encouragements, your celebrations. I would have missed out on all that. But you know what? The gospel still would have been preached. People still would have been raised up in the Lord. It just would have been with me in it. And he'll do the same. He'll keep doing all the things that he wants to do to bring life into this dead planet of ours that is such a mess right now. But what he wants to know is, could I call you into this? Could I use you? Would you hear that today, please? Dick and Terry Greenlee almost did it. They were given a call from God and they're right on the edge of retiring like somebody that you're looking at. That's when their wake-up call came. And they chose to answer it. And with that answer, they are living a life they never could have imagined. I want to show you just a little glimpse of it, and we'll be done. Let's watch. All right, so before we get started, I just want to make sure I've got all this straight. You planted underground churches in China. You traded wells to free pygmy slaves in the Congo. And now you're part of the biggest wall project in the world. And you did all of this out of your small pump shop in Oklahoma. How did all this happen? It's a long story. My wife Terry and I were living pretty conventional lives. We were an ordinary family, two kids, a dog, a cat. We'd worked at our water pump company, Pumps of Oklahoma, for our entire life. We were the experts on water pumps in Oklahoma. We pretty much had it locked in for the next 30 years on what exactly this was going to look like. Building the company, have a little bit extra money, and then just set our lives up for this easy glide path into retirement. One day, one of our customers came into the shop. He said, well, I just flew in from Taiwan. And I said, what were you doing in Taiwan? He goes, well, I was planting churches. And in the most sanctimonious voice and tone that I could muster, I said, well, I'd like to go on a mission trip sometime, knowing that I really didn't want to go on a mission trip ever. 
And he said, so Dick, you have solar power pumps. We could go into mainland China and then we could go plant churches and we could end up getting water to these people. It's scaring the heck out of me right now because I don't want to go to China and plant churches. <laughs> I was just saying that because that's what church people do. <laughs> Four months later, I'm in Southern China in a really remote village. We're able to install two solar pumps where they've never had running water to see what happens when people get clean water, where little girls can go to school because there actually is sanitation facilities at their school, transforms the whole community. When Dick got back, it was obvious that there was so much need in the world. God had placed us where we were in the kind of business that we were in. We knew that it wasn't accidental. From that point on, the safe, easy glide path to retirement wasn't going to be there. So after one of our trips, we determined that solar pumps were too high tech. We needed to invent a new type of hand pump. And so I thought of my old college roommate, Steve. And I hadn't talked to him in probably two years. I came in Monday morning, checked my voicemail, and it's Steve. And he goes, well, my pump went out in my granite shop. And I go, well, forget that. I've been to China three times. I've been to Sierra Leone. I need help inventing a hand pump. We met for lunch, and I told him it had to be able to pump water 80 to 100 feet deep, be built in country, less than $100 in cost. And oh, by the way, I needed it in three months. And he goes, yeah, I'll start tomorrow. So Steve finds a drawing from Leonardo da Vinci from 1498. A couple days later, he finds a patent from England from 1675. He combines the two drawings, and we end up with the access 1.2 hand pump, which is the pump that we're using today. And the cost is $20. At that point, we created a new manual drilling method made in-country by the in-country people. We started training and mentoring teams all over the world. If we could help people start their own drilling businesses, their own pump repair businesses, as soon as they were trained, they would just take it from there and solve the water crisis in their communities. We said yes to every project that we came across, and we just kept seeing God show up in every place. Over the course of 10 years now, We've gotten water to a million people. We've drilled 3,200 wells. We've spoken at the United Nations. We're working on the largest freshwater project in the world, the 7,000 well project. We've been to 32 different countries. We have 350 business partners that we work with around the world every single day that get up and start drilling wells so they can feed their families, so they can be the solution to their own village's problems. Quite often, we ask ourselves, how did we get here? It all started just with saying yes to the things that were right in front of us, that are in our everyday life. The only reason it works is because God makes it work. He takes the little that you have and makes it much. That's what answering a call will do. Just doing what the next thing is that's right in front of you. 
that's what I keep reading in Scripture. That's what I keep hearing from some of you who have answered the call and getting to hear the stories of what God's been doing in your life. So I just want to end by asking this. What are you hearing this morning? If you answer that call, it will mean risk. If you answer that call, it will be about serving and giving and faith. Not knowing what's around the corner or where this is leading. That's what that will mean. But I so hope you answer the call. You will not regret an eternity. You may wonder sometimes here, but you will not regret it in eternity. Father, we come to you this morning and we are trying our best to respond to that call. And we know that there are battles right now going on right now in the hearts and places and the minds of people around us right now. Everyone that you've brought into this place who are watching on the net, thank you that you call still. Think of that you interrupt what we think is a life to lead us into an abundant, deeper, more meaningful, forever lasting life. Thank you. And this morning, who, whoever you brought here today who needs to respond and say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Please, nudge them. Let them do more than just sing this song as we prepare to gather around the table. Let them, Father, commit this morning to following you. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said.